Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. Christelle Fisher-Beauvais, a professor of classics, history, and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Southern California. In this episode, we discuss whether the lack of instruction past the death of Alexander of Macedon hinders efforts to study the history of the aftermath his death created, get a short introduction to the uses and movement of papyri in the Mediterranean, and dive into the relationship between Ptolemaic Egypt and Seleucid Persia. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me this day for me, evening for you. Uh, I want to get us started and ask you, how did you get into ancient history, classics, just passion? Like, where did this passion for the ancient world come from? Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I actually grew up in Europe. And so I've been surrounded by medieval and ancient artifacts kind of my entire life. So I was fascinated by any old stuff, if you want. And so I was intrigued from the beginning. And then when I was at school in the public system, you could you know, study Latin and I say, well, why not? Uh, And then you could study Greek, too, and say, well, it's even more special. Let's try that. So that's how, you know, little by little, in fact, through the languages, I, I learn about uh, Rome and Roman culture and Greece and Greek culture. But uh, it could have been, I was really, you know, interested in history. So it could have been another place or another period. It just things happen that way. When I was at the university, I had the chance, I mean, the, the kind of turning point was when I encountered inscriptions and papyri kind of at the same time and suddenly i realized we could know little things about you know a petition by a farmer to the administration in a village in the middle of egypt or we could learn about the account of a small city-state in greece and i found that was really incredible and opened so many doors to do social history and not just uh, the history of the top one percent so that was the turning point then that led me to do research uh, with with greek papyri initially and then i moved East, I mean, from Greece to Egypt to the Hellenistic world, so, you know, including the Near East. That's so cool. And growing up in Europe, obviously, the educational system is different from the U.S. system. And as someone who didn't grow up in Europe, you know, how does that differ from ours? Like, is it from what I'm imagining are you forced to choose quite early a specialization and just follow that? Because I know in Europe, they do tend to force you to choose earlier than here. Or did you still have enough freedom? 
Yes, that's true. Also, a lot has changed since I've been through the system. So I can say that the, um, the U.S. system has, to some extent, you know, influenced some some countries in Europe where we realized that we were pushing some people to choose quite early, make decisions, and, and not giving bridges uh, later on. So it has improved. I was lucky that you know I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an historian, and you know from one step to another. If even if I could, you know, if I had uh, I don't know Chinese languages offered in my high school, I would maybe have chosen that and and done you know ancient Chinese or medieval Chinese history. Who knows? So you know it's it's a combination. But that's true now. Um, at least in in Switzerland, where um, I grew up, you don't have access to Latin and Greek the way it was uh, a couple of <laughs> years ago. Uh, so so it it it's not really a curriculum that you could do so easily now. But you can still learn in high school um, Latin for sure, and in some Greek, if you want. And then at the university, of course, you can catch up with the languages you want. Also, we have small universities, so in a sense, you know, you may not be able to learn Coptic or some, you know, some version of Egyptian language everywhere. There are only a few places where you can do that. Nice. And so turning a bit to your love of papyri, which you said you discovered and said, ah, this is wonderful and I have to do this. Once you found that, was it pretty single-minded and and, and did you have it in your head that you wanted to expand and, and go more into sort of the cross-cultural context? Or did you think for a minute maybe you would stay, you know, on a specific set of papyri from a specific place or time? Yeah, I mean, I think... I expected to work mostly on Egypt. I was you know, exploring and discovering what we call Hellenistic history, which is you know, after Alexander the Great death, so three to three, until uh, I mean, historians, even if we always criticize this kind of key dates, we still use them. So you know, until the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC. So that's the period I'm working the most on so i you know i that's not a, a period that is really often thought even if you do a little bit of ancient history it will stop usually with alexander or the first uh, the generation just after alexander it, it's changing but it has been like that for a very long time and you would switch to you know the roman republic and so you will hardly mention these enormous empires that have impacted hundreds of thousands of people. So in a sense, I was a bit naive. I didn't realize, you know, where I was landing exactly. So I was starting from, you know, the little village and the question about, you know, temp interaction with Egyptian temples was something yeah, I thought I would be working uh, on. So no, I didn't, I didn't realize there was all these possibilities of more multicultural history. Also, by the nature of what became you know, the topic I worked on, which, which is the army in Egypt, I was immediately you know, facing the question of intercultural relationships. You know, what does immigration mean when immigrants or migrants are actually people settling in the country and you know, 
taking, I mean, they reclaim a lot of territories to give land to these new settlers from Greece and, and Macedonia and, and the, what we call the Greek ancient Greek world, um, but it was not just as all smooth um, events. I mean, there was also violence and, of course, power balances, inequality of power. So you know, that was the first step of, okay, there is a, so much. I mean, Egypt was multicultural already before um, the Greeks following Alexander got there. So that was a first step. And then the more you, you know, you look at texts, you explore history, the more you see, oh, I need to know much more and I need to learn much more about these other interactions and and other uh, empires and other experience of people in different rural areas, thousands of kilometers away. I love what you said also, just kind of circling back to the beginning of your answer, which is something that I sort of didn't realize or think about until just now. It's true in a lot of the sort of uh, history classes that I had as an undergrad. History does kind of just stop with Alexander, and then you don't get any of the Hellenistic period, and especially not Hellenistic Egypt. And so as someone who that is where your specialty lies, you know, how much does it, I don't want to say handicap, but like, I guess, how unfortunate is it from your perspective that like we don't put more emphasis on either dedicating a class or just more time in a bigger class to that time period? Because I feel like we're going to miss a lot of things, you know, and not even not even including the, the material that you specialize on, but like just generally the time period, you know, do you feel like that has a really big impact on our education? Like... I don't know why we don't really focus on what comes after. Yeah, I mean it's I mean it's a complicated question to unpack. I mean there are there are historical reasons because the texts that we cherish are from you know, mostly fifth century or fourth century, mostly Athens or Augustan poetry, and so that has you know led us because there are these canonical texts that have had such an impact on early modern, I mean, Renaissance and early modern history in, in Western society that has been for a long time the focus. And so ancient history has become or has been Greece and Rome in a sense. And now there is a, you know, a, a big uh, reflection on that and on changing that. And you can push it, you know, as far as you want you say well, yes we should also include you know do this plus you know include egypt and the near east and the whole um, basically western uh, Eurasia. and uh, you can also say but why should we stop there right <laughs> why should i <laughs> why should we say that ptolemaic egypt is more important than and china or you know or you know you can take so many examples so so it's tricky so in a sense i mean in an ideal world we would be offering all these different classes and people can choose and the goal is that you know some will just be exposed to all these different cultures and can think you know you can make some parallels and contrast and the goal is is not to say everything is the same but to say that there are so so many 
similar experience for ordinary people across the world petitioning the state because their neighbors just stole their sheep. You know, that's, that's something that, uh, that many people have been sharing as an issue. And so, so there is a lot, but then you can, in common, uh, but then you can detect, okay, what is the system? I mean, is there anything you can do in that society when that happens to you? Who can actually do it? How will you, what is the rhetoric that you will use to make your point? And that's where it becomes interesting, because if you just study one place, I mean, you, you can be, I mean, most of us, you know, we are mortal, we can be expert of only one specific area or time period. But to be aware of more than that, I think avoid having the or making statements about how unique your case or the civilization you are you are studying is, you know, different. Just helps you to see why there are differences, to explain them to some extent. But you know, you can do better research and you can also be a better thinker or citizen uh, by having this multiple experience you can take. Now, of course, um, it's it's difficult to realize that it's maybe something we can, you know, think of uh, as a direction that we could take. And, you know, I, I think you're, de- you, I mean, you're definitely not uh, the first and, and won't be the last to say, you know, hey, we should put more emphasis and yes we should teach more classes on this now just because I'm not as familiar with the material and so I mean and I don't want to make any assumptions but also in case our audience does not either when I think of papyri and inscriptions I'm like okay I know what each of those are kind of on their own but I'm not really familiar with all the different kinds of inscriptions and things you can find on a piece of papyri. I think, you know, the the popular thing is just, oh, is this where they put, you know, Mm -hmm. the fancy Book of the Dead drawings? Do you put only fancy things? Do you only put records? So would you teach us, please, like what kind of things can you find on the papyri? So what makes them so interesting to study? Well, what is interesting in a sense is that we were not supposed to read them or it's usually either private correspondence or you, you can have accounting, so it's used by you and people working with you on an estate. And it's it may be thought as something you will keep for several years, but not something that you, know, you may keep forever. So it's different from the inscription in that when you take the time and the energy and the cost of writing something on an inscription, you really want this message to be seen, if not read, because of course the level of literacy is is low. But often in, in Egypt you will have um, some image of the god associated to the temple where you will put the inscription, or you will be something to relate to, and there will probably be some sort of little ceremony when you put an important text. So for papyri are completely different in a sense. So we have accounts, we have small, you know, letters. Um, bring me that if you are in the village next door because I need it. And by the way, say hello to Petosiris and <laughs> and Asclepiades. So you have this kind of text, or you have a petition, as I mentioned. You have a lot of state correspondence because the reason. For 
why we have this papyrus at some point, I mean, early on in the third century BC, um, the Ptolemies decided to recycle their papers, basically. And so part of the papers were um, used and sold to embalmers who would use and make cartonnage with the papyri, and that will be used for mummies cartonnage, basically. And so that's why we have most of these papyri that were then preserved, because thanks to the dry sand of Egypt, it, it was preserved. For, for Hellenistic pap papyri, a lot comes from mummy cartonnage. Sometimes we are lucky and someone found an archive that usually was sold in the black market and spread, and you have a piece of the same text sometimes in the collection in Munich and another in the US because people were in the in the 19th century and also 20th century were selling you know piece of papyri. So that's how it spread uh, in the modern days. But back to the ancient times, so you will have information about officials and their tasks. But of course, they don't say everything you want to know because it's internal conversation, right? They, they know what they are talking about. And what is also funny sometimes is that when you get to have a piece that is preserved, you, they will copy letters. So it's like your emails and having all the forwarded messages below. They will do, in fact, the same. So you will have the important text. I mean, the one that has the content for you as an historian at, at the bottom. And you will have people saying, I, you know, I send you a copy of the letter that says that. Please do that and send it to this guy. And you will have the guy saying to another guy and so on, you know, to accomplish what is written in the original letter. So it's kind of it's kind of funny. But I don't know, maybe you want to know other things about this papyri. I mean, you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned, I mean, Book of the Dead, which were still, you know, copied and bought by people. So we have this kind of uh, religious texts that were certain preserved. We have some literary texts that were discovered, <laughs> Aristotle, or pseudo-Aristotle constitution or that in some were just preserved only in papyri. So we found passages of Greek literature that we didn't know, or we can assess what was which books, which one of the books of the Iliad were the most read, <laughs> because we will find more fragments. So you have all that you can know about culture, about religion. You can learn about reusing text because sometimes you will have an account on the back of what was a literary text and it's not used anymore. So you can do a lot of reconstruction. You can try to date things on this basis. I mean, it's just an immense field um, of, of discovery of cultural and social history. I mean, it's fascinating because I definitely don't, uh, you know, I didn't get any kind of Egyptological classes in undergrad, sadly, uh, although I had one, but it was art, art history. So not on, on any of this stuff. So no, it's fascinating to see kind of what you could find on it, you know, okay, if it's an internal communication between people, whether it's like a religious or family thing. Now, I, I know a lot of your work also centers on ancient economy. And so to tie it kind of in 
with the papyri, you know, while some of them seem to be passed between families and, and like friends, I guess, you know, are these also the types of things that would help drive economies? Like, could you essentially say, you know, here's the thing and it requests money or or do you need to do you, would you ever need to pay for a papyri like how does that work in the ancient world yeah there are there are notaries so for private property it's kind of important and you will make a contract especially for things really valuable so like uh, if you buy a house or if there is um inheritance uh, it will be, you know, explained precisely who gets what part of the house and how it's split between the different members of the family. And we see we have um, trial proceedings sometimes, and we know that they were bringing these pieces, they were bringing the contract to prove that, you know, that piece of house is theirs. And it's not because their mother-in-law now is living there that it belongs to her. And we have trials where actually, you know, you have an Egyptian family and a Greek soldiers trying to pretend it's his house. And at the end, so it's a Ptolemaic state. He, I mean, they, they win their case because they have these documents. So these are the documents you will really cherish and keep within the family. We have some contracts sometimes for you know, selling a donkey, something <laughs> like that, but, but less often because, as you said, it costs something to, to make the contract. So you will do it when it's really you know, long term. But it's developing more and more throughout. Uh, I mean, it's already happening before the Ptolemies, and they used demotic. So one, one, it's demotic is at the same time uh, stage in the Egyptian language, starting around. I mean, a little bit before the Ptolemies, and it's also a very cursive writing, and not easy to read and or to decipher. And that is still used. We can see that um, scribe, as we call them, so um, in the village who works for the administration, have been initially trained by by the, the they were member of the temples. I mean, village elites, most of the elites are connected to the temples in Egypt. Uh, they would write, you know, the the census or the tax lists for a village in demotic and then when you have people above them compiling things they will compile these lists from villages and compile them in greek you know as you see that people higher in the hierarchy would be initially from the greek world little by little we have a group of the population the upper strata that must have been bilingual they must have been some um, intermarriage, we have evidence of that. We see more and more happening over time. What is not always easy is that people have double names and or they may change names or they may be from an Egyptian background and use the Greek names in a Greek context if they work for the state. So unless you have several documents and you can identify because in one of them we get the Egyptian and the Greek names, you will never know that this person actually, you know, may, may have uh, maybe of Egyptian culture initially or from a mixed family. 
I mean, that's so fascinating. That's also fascinating. I, you know, every time I learn more about the material and what you can find, what you can't, I'm always like, oh, I wish I could take a class on this and learn more. I suppose that's what this conversation is, just a one-on-one class. But so you did mention that, you know, one of the reasons, you know, these survive pretty well is because Egypt is very dry, right? It's the desert. And so we can find a lot of evidence that survives. But I do know that obviously papyri travel. Um, A lot of things traveled across the ancient world, especially the Mediterranean and and the other places where Hellenistic Egypt had relations. So as this is a, a podcast that covers a lot of Persian history, I'm curious how much of the papyri that may have originated in Hellenistic Egypt traveled up and around and I believe, uh, let's see, up into, this was the Seleucid Empire, I believe. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the main, uh, <laughs> the main empire they are uh, dealing with. I mean, they are fighting a lot, but they are also exchanging princesses. I mean, they have family links and more and more over time. But yes, I mean, actually papyri were sold and throughout the Mediterranean. So people would be using papyri everywhere in the Mediterranean. And if it had been dry, we would find them. Um, You find them in Herculaneum in Italy because they were uh, carbonized. So if you have carbonized papyri, you know, that's, that's what you can find in Europe. And and then we've now developed, you know, technology to to be able to to unfold and, and read them or read them even without unfolding them. So that was really something that would have circulated that people that the Seleucids would have been, you know, writing on too, which is lost. We have Ostraca. So um, basically clay, little pieces of uh, pottery that were used for um, for writing. And we have them, I mean, we found some, it's from mostly from the later period, but uh, in Dura Europos, so you know, in, in Mesopotamia. And so, yeah, but mostly, and we have, you know, Ostraca from Egypt. They are usually, I mean, it's cheaper, so they are, usually less important text so they can be tax receipts that's really something that um, i mean it's an interesting thing that is developed in a sense it's it's kind of protects you you know you can show that you paid your taxes you have your tax receipts and that would be used and sometimes written in in demotic hmm. Well, it's a shame not everywhere had the nice dry conditions that Egypt did then, because uh, I wonder how much more we would we would know about people and places. So that is, I guess, something we can be sad about that's lost from the ancient. Uh, another thing I should say to be sad about that is lost from from antiquity. But okay, so I I don't get to spend a lot of time thinking about the Hellenistic period at all, which is sad. But uh, it's not it's not something that I've ever really gotten the chance to think about. But you know, I would say sitting here from what I know, it's a lot of the pop culture stuff that I get from either like the Alexander film that was made in like 2004. And so I have a very basic and probably honestly incorrect idea of the relations between all the different kingdoms, right, that emerged once Alexander died. And so how much interaction really was there between... Hellenistic Egypt when Ptolemy went down there and the Seleucid Empire when it 
you know, did its own thing. Was there a lot of sort of interaction? I think people have this misunderstanding of, well, they were all Alexander's generals, right? So they must have talked to each other and been friends after. And I'm like, "Mm," dubious. But yeah, from your perspective, how much interaction was there? And if if there was, was it obviously at that like lower level between sort of the people, the merchants and not the upper level sort of people in charge, let's say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated and it's also one of the reasons why we often stop with Alexander and at best, uh, I mean, his successors, because suddenly you have, you know, the, all these protagonists and you don't have an Herodotus or a Thucydides telling you a story. I mean, we have Diodorus for the successors of Alexander, so we can we have something easier to follow that the puzzle of inscription and papyri to put together to reconstruct the history. And then we have, I mean, for the later in the period, for time in the period, uh, we have Polybius, who is a Greek historian who covered more the 220s to the 140s. And so that, you know, it's difficult because we, we, we don't have someone who holds our hand and, and lead us. So in terms of interaction, I mean, we have this massive immigration uh, happening. As I say, we already had people, for instance, going to Egypt before Alexander. We had soldiers, especially. There was a long tradition from the Greek world, from Ionia, from Caria. So I'm talking about modern Turkey today, working for... Uh, the pharaohs in the 6th century BC. But at, at that time, I think the, the level of what we can assume of thousands of, of men, especially soldiers, and we can assume you know, merchants and all these administrators that these states that are taking over, of course, use a lot of local people. I mentioned the scribes in the villages, but they also need officials that can handle maybe higher levels initially. So we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people moving. It's not as easy to look at merchants as at soldiers because we just don't have as many sources on them. And also because when we have historians, they will tell us about battles and troops and, you know, that's what they are interested in mostly. So it, it's more difficult to have a sense of uh, the merchant community. Also for Egypt, we don't have papyri from the Delta area because it's wet. So, so we shouldn't think that we know everything from everywhere, we there are regions or even villages or uh, no uh, norms are the district of Egypt. Or suddenly, you know a lot because we found papyrus from a couple of decades, and then you don't know anything anymore from this region. So we have really a patchwork. It's messy. So we have now going back to you know what is happening between Macedonia and Greece on the one hand. So we have uh, what will become the Antigonids who will take over. So the descendants, they are complicated story until it, it's re- it gets stable, but of uh, Antigonos, the one-eyed, that is somehow people remember about him. And you have at some point Seleucus who is able to get rid of Antigonus and, and take 
um, what will be the Seleucid Empire with uh, Syria and um, and Babylonia and the Iranian plateau to Afghanistan. And you have Ptolemy who will get Egypt and will extend. So we should also think, I try often to you know say, we, we cannot just talk about Egypt. We have this documentation that is great, but uh, the Ptolemies were aiming at a much bigger empire. For a long time, they thought, oh, Ptolemy, he's just looking at Egypt and doesn't try to do anything. But there has been a lot of research now and work and say, no, look, I mean, they are all trying basically to expand as much as they can. So it's continuous warfare. Even once, you know, we say after this generation of the successors, they kind of all die by 280 BC. We have these three main kingdoms I've mentioned. I'm even simplifying a little bit, but let's say we have these three kingdoms and they will still be regularly wars. So between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the kind of uh, bone of contention is a region that is called Syria and Phoenicia or Koele Syria, Holo Syria. And it represents what is today part of modern Lebanon and southern Syria and part of Jordan and Israel and the Palestinian territories. This area, there has been some kind of misunderstanding of who would get it. <laughs> and then every generation, there will be what we call a Syrian war, usually about this, this area, but sometimes actually happening elsewhere around Turkey or in the Aegean. There will be a gener every generation, there will be a, a Syrian war where each of uh, the, I mean, the two empires, the Seleucid and the, the Ptolemies will try to take back uh, this, this part of the world. Oh, man. I mean, I always kind of hate to simplify that period of history into the, I, I sort of endearingly say it's like the, the squabbling children period where, you know, Alexander's the father kind of dies and then he has five squabbling children who all just want to take their, their share and then don't know what to do uh, thereafter. But that that's way oversimplifying it, but it does kind of seem that way. But yeah, I didn't even know that Ptolemy did actually want more. And I, again, that's just a byproduct of they don't teach us these things. But yeah, like, it, I guess it seems natural that he would try to go more into the Middle East and up. But, you know, realistically, could he have gone anywhere else? Like if he wanted to expand? I mean, all the others are kind of, you know, next to each other and they all kind of stretch in that line. So there, there isn't really anywhere else to go. But I'm just like, but Egypt, you're, you're already you're down. You're on the bottom of the Mediterranean. You have other places to go. So, I mean, just as a casual observer, I'm like, why do you want to go up and encroach further into someone else's territory who doesn't actually have a lot of room to go anywhere? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, of course, there are, you know, many reasons for that. And you're, you're right, they can go south. And actually, Ptolemy II is expanding uh, south into Nubia or lower Nubia. Ptolemy I had already been going in what we call Cyrenaica, which is modern Libya. And so they all this region, they kind of interfere in local affairs of the main city. Uh, it was a Greek foundation that uh, from centuries earlier. And so um, that's how 
they control Cyrenaica. And one reason why you know, they may want to expand into other type of territories may be an economic reasons, and that has been kind of emphasized now by research on the environment and also on Nile failure caused by volcanic eruption very far away, but that have an impact on the monsoon and the monsoon have an impact on the Nile. And so because potentially they would you know, realize that the years you have an eye failure, these other territories that are not, that are rain-fed territories may not have the same issue as Egypt. So, you know, you may want to put your eggs in more than one basket, so to speak. So, you know, that, that may be a very pragmatic reason. And another is that, you know, it's, it's intense competitions. If you don't, you know, attract soldiers and the Ptolemies were very good at because of probably the myth of very wealthy Egypt would help. Uh, even the, the Alexandrian poets who were in Alexandria, which was just this magnificent city, they would say that, the, you know, Ptolemy is the best paymaster. Of course, he would say that. But there may be some truth because we know they were giving big grant of land to soldiers that we call clerics. They had been reclaiming areas for new land in Egypt. So, you know, you may have gotten a, a good deal indeed <laughs> if you were, if you were going there. So, um, so you don't want the others to attract soldiers, right? So there is this kind of, if you don't do it, someone will do it. And Egypt was in, almost invaded twice in the fourth century at the time of the successor of Alexander. And Ptolemy I was able to defend Egypt. So you have to do that or you will be taken. That's, that's kind of, I mean, it's a stress on all, all these, on all these different states that have to, in a sense, they developed a, a lot of state in, institutions to be able to pay soldiers, which means, you know, they developed monetization at that time. They got all this, pactol is not the right word to use that, but all this wealth from the Persian Empire that Alexander just seized. And so we have, you know, massive striking of money in the Mediterranean at that point. And one of the main motivation is to pay soldiers, right? with initially silver coins and then you would have bronze coinage that will develop and become very little more important locally uh, so you know all these reasons all these pressures have a lot of consequences on on the population i mean it's also interesting and i'm thinking about like the logistics like as you're speaking i'm trying to you know envision the region and think oh yeah that would make sense but that, of course, sparks, you know, 10,000 more. So it's it's a bit hard to prioritize. But, you know, so much of what I'm learning here and what I hope our audience is learning here today is fascinating. And and the more I think about it, the more I think, you know, OK, maybe from a classics background and standpoint, you don't really get to get into the Hellenistic period. If you do Egypt, you probably might approach it uh, in a more straightforward manner. But when thinking about what's happening in the world at this time, by the time you do hit the Ptolemaic period. And I do think about something like the Seleucid Empire. You know, it's it's huge. It's, I believe, the dynasty that follows the last of the Achaemenids, uh, I think. 
but I really, I think uh, in schooling and all my years, I've, I've heard it mentioned like twice in the context of, and this is what took over and then we skip and then go to somewhere else in history. But as someone who studies this time period, and so this is the major player right now in that region op- opposite the Ptolemaic uh, rulers, why do you think we kind of skip over them and don't really talk about it? Because I feel like so much of it is we talk about the Achaemenids and then we kind of skip over right to the Parthians. But I'm like, no, 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 they were they were here. They were doing stuff in the region. So, you know, is it again a case of just, oh, it's just the part of history that we kind of skip because we don't have as much stuff. And so we just mention it and move on. Yeah, I mean, there is a question of source, of course. You know what is available, but uh, and so for the Seleucids, in comparison to the Ptolemies, you have you don't have the papyri. So, um, but you but you have cuneiform tablets from Babylonia. You have inscriptions. You have coins. You have the archaeology. And for that period, actually, there is more archaeology than than Egypt. I mean, the archaeology of Hellenistic Egypt was not the priority for a long time. It's changing now. So, so that's one of the reasons. Another reason you can think to is, you know, the, I mean, the, the Greek or Roman authors that we are following a lot, um, they didn't really think that these kings were, you know, they found them as degenerated. They thought that the Oriental mine had contaminated them. And I mean, they had a very big prejudice about anybody moving east. I mean, many of the, you know, oriental cliche as, as uh, where there they are there in our sources and most of our author came um, from city states not always democracy oligarchy and so on but they had a certain opinion about monarchy so you read a lot of negative uh, distorted version of you know these kings are drinking and therefore they just make all these wrong decisions and you know that's that's what it is and then you don't have for the Seleucids. It depends of you know the legacy. Who feels that it is you know worth it to talk about them? If I I use an example closer to my home, you know the Gauls. You know, well you have nation states that had an interest in building a story about the Gauls. I mean, thanks to that we have Asterix, and that's <laughs> it's good to have a good comics. But we don't have that with the Seleucid in particular. Nobody felt as a hair of the Seleucids, really. I mean, that, that may be one explanation. I'm not a Seleucid expert. So that's, you know, some, some pieces of the puzzle of why some, some um, empires are less talked about. And then you have the difficulties of learning the languages. So in the last... 30 years, people have started, like with Achaemenid history, to read much more from the Achaemenid point of view and and to learn the languages. And that has happened too with with the Seleucid. I mean, looking at the astronomical diary, I mean, taking into account that, not just the Greek or Roman authors that uh, have their ideas. So that is helping, but it makes things complicated for someone who wants to study this period and to learn the languages he needs to know. I mean, I know you've already talked about that on on this uh, podcast about all the different languages you may want to have uh, when you study different period of Iranian history. And that's the same with Egypt. So you should 
you know, you, I mean, my, my response to that is that Hellenistic history is really something that push you to collaborate. And that's one, you know, obvious way forward. <laughs> we need to, to work as groups, not only because we need all these languages, but we also need to use different type of sources, not just textual, but archaeology, numismatic, and now more and more partial modelization, or you can think about many, I mean, statistical tools to handle quantitative data. And so we really need to think in terms of more than one person doing the job. <laughs> uh, and, and that may also have been, you know, why, one of the reasons. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there is a, a right answer to that, but you know, I I think it's interesting to get your thoughts as someone who you know specializes in the the general period of of time that this would be around, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm gonna get a little speculative, so this is based on no expertise, just a feeling. I will preface that so I don't get in trouble and people say, but you said, but you know, when thinking about this time period and what's happening. Uh, but then also comparing and then and then basically bouncing off of what you said of, you know, who really considers himself an heir of the Seleucids, but looking a bit earlier in history, you know, the way we, we do look at the Achaemenids and say, oh, yes, but we have Dariuses and the Xerxeses and the Cyruses and the Cambyses and all these, you know, great people, but also looking at, you know, what's happening in world history at that point, the Persian Empire seems very oriental and different and not hellenized and then you get later in time and yes alexander came and conquered all these places but i mean his reputation right at least in classical circles is that he's the great hellenizer he comes through and he civilizes places because he brings his greek influence sort of so i wonder sometimes if we just as a result of like the fact that yes Alexander came down and he conquered Egypt and he put it in his empire, but he also left and he wasn't famously obsessed with living in, you know, a palace in, in Thebes or something. But I know historically, you know, we, we have documents that say, oh, yes, well, he really liked Babylon, you know, and he really wanted to stay in these places over here in the Middle East. Sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe it had something to do with um, his sort of Hellenizing influence or presence that turns what would become the Seleucid Empire more, you know, Hellenized, quote unquote, or Greek, and then it just sort of loses kind of that that independence that it once had. And, and whereas Egypt, I mean, Egypt had a very distinct culture on its own, and that was able to sort of push through and, and stay quite different. I don't know. I'm speculating, but it's interesting to think about like, why? Yeah, why do we just not talk about the Seleucids? Because <laughs> do we see them as too Greekified after Alexander? Like, I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really, you know, layers of generations reading, reading Alexander in often problematic ways that have all sorts of consequences. But that's true that Egypt has this, you know, has this aura from Pharaonic Egypt already. Also, often Egyptologists also stopped at that point, I mean, even stopped earlier when we start having uh, what is said and told as, you know, more foreign immigration and foreign influence as while it happened already before, of course. But we also see in our sources 
I mean, that's at some point you have to handle different languages. And, and when you get to the Hellenistic and the Roman period, of course, I mean, you cannot just, you know, uh, know Egyptian to do the history of Egypt. Uh, you have to know different languages and it's not easy. I mean, you need to add, you know, demotic or uh, to your toolkit. So that, you know, that makes things also complicated. So in a sense, from all different perspectives and then people studying from after the Arabic conquest are not either so interested in this kind of Greek or Roman period. So there had been many reasons that, you know, even if maybe Egypt has a, you know, um, uh, has uh, is one step ahead, <laughs> or the Ptolemies had this kind of advantage on the Seleucid to be uh, remembered. Yeah, it's it's obviously complicated. Of course, you have Cleopatra too. That you know is part of the the myth. Also, usually there is no. I mean, it's it's only after, once you talk about her that there is a realization that she is a Ptolemy. And that she is, <laughs> she is one of the, I mean, one of the last of the, of this dynasty of the general of Alexander. But she, I mean, she's well known, but she's often not really, is not, you know, is not thought as a Ptolemy or helping Ptolemaic history to be more uh, on the map. Yeah, I mean, she just, for better or for worse, right? She occupies like her own individual sphere and sort of we, disconnect her and and yeah she's she's her own singular entity yeah but at the same time in fact to to go to one thing we haven't talked in terms of uh, exchanging interaction between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are the princesses and so there have been marriages of uh, the Ptolemic princess to a Seleucid king in the third century for instance and it tends to be that the most powerful king is getting the princess and so you have that is happening once in the middle of the third century otherwise the ptolemies have are well known and have been uh, criticized by the greek or roman author for practicing sibling marriage so they usually the king marries sister right so we have generations of brother sister marriages but from time to time you don't have there is no sister and so you would have actually the first of the cleopatra is a seleucid princess so cleopatra is a macedonian name it's a good old macedonian name and that's uh, cleopatra the first was was a seleucid and it accelerated at some point in the middle of the second century when at that point the ptolemies are rather weaning over the seleucids and creating usurpers to interfere and and in very complicated completely intermeshed dynastic conflict and so you have ptolemaic princesses one is even a queen uh, with uh, two brothers in a row and then with her son uh, and maybe for a little bit by herself her name is cleopatra athea the goddess she even has coins and so Cleopatra is, in fact, if you look at their genealogy, the last heir of both the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So she, 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 is, <laughs> she is both. And she's trying to re rebuild. I'm not the only one who's been arguing that and who is actually trying to rebuild the whole piece of the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire together 
in a unique configuration, of course, with, with Roman troops and Mark Antony. But in terms of legitimacy, she could claim to be the heir of, of both empires. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point to remind us. And I'm really glad you brought up the uh, intermarriage part, because I was gonna say, I know it happened a, a lot in the ancient world. I mean, it, it served a valuable political purpose for sealing alliances and, you know, making sure they can't betray me if my family member is also their family member. But also, I, you know, Egypt's relationship to sort of the, the outsider, the non-Egyptian, right, is, is quite well documented and, and interesting. And, and so, you know, how accepted was it? Was it basically seen just as like this very political thing? Or did this extend down to maybe non, you know, royal family, other Egyptians who would, who would uh, maybe engage in intermarriage from, you know, with someone from the Seleucid Empire? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, um, I mean, we we have families, uh, we know about some of the families of high officials, and usually they would marry within other families at the court where they are. That said, there had been a lot of scholarship now on on Hellenistic queens, uh, because in some special configuration, especially when they are the regent or when the king is not there, they suddenly were able to have, especially starting the second century, not so much earlier, at, at the particular moment, a lot of, of power. So there has been work on, on that. So we, we assume that when a queen is coming, she's not coming alone. <laughs> so she's coming with member of the Seleucid course to Egypt, right? So there must have been some interactions, also some knowledge passing this way. Now, that said, there has been more siblings marriage within the Ptolemaic family than actually external bride coming. But when it happens or when it goes the other way around, we we think that indeed they must have been family that went with them. I mean, did they come back or not? We we, we don't have the detail. Another mystery for the ancient world, of the ancient world, I should say. I mean, okay, I could go on and ask a billion more questions, but unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time because um, we would probably be dead. Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? Visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser-known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map, or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.irangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. So there are two big questions that I like to ask at the end of each podcast episode. And as I said, you know, for since you're not in the field of Iranian studies proper, since you're sort of adjacent to it, but do cross-cultural stuff, you can adapt this to whatever lens best suits, however you'd like to answer this question, essentially. The first of which questions are, you know, what do you believe is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Well, I guess, I mean, this the structure of an empire. I mean, if you look at, you know, comparing empires, it's uh, this big chunk of um, Western Eurasia that is under the control. And in a sense, you have a repetition of 
of that. I mean, successive empires kind of either trying to reproduce and to to expand as much as they could, kind of within the same not borders but borderlands, right? And it's it's happening again and again. And a lot of the toolkits of empires, it's not just starting with the Persian. I mean, we should go go back earlier with the Neo-Babylonian and Neo-Assyrians and so on. I mean, but you you I mean you can see the toolkits of, uh, of or the ruling strategies that are there are a lot of similarities. Ideologically, there are a lot of, you know, same type of claim of universal kingship that we, we find with a, with a later Hellenistic state. And you can see that already with the Achaemenids. One thing, I, um, because of what I've just been reading now is uh, the concept, I mean, the royal roads is something that is fascinating. And we have royal roads with the Seleucid. And with the Ptolemies, uh, until recently, I was not even thinking about that. But um, the roads that they were building to connect the Nile to the Red Sea, one of them at least, uh, resemble very much in, in a desert version, uh, resemble uh, what these royal roads were. We station the same Greek word is used as Herodotus used it for our, in our Ostraca from the Egyptian Oriental Eastern desert. So um, we have the same, th these roads are not really, I mean, the goal is not, it's not a border, it's really to communicate. For the Ptolemies, there is something special as they were hunting elephants further down in Africa, and they would bring them back through the Red Sea and then back to the Nile Valley through this road, that only in, in the third century. But still, we have this, we have one wild road too. <laughs> Nice. And the second question, and again, you can sort of reposition this however you'd like, but what do you believe would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? And as you are not in Iranian studies, I will caveat that and say best legacy we can leave for students who would like to study any of the Persian empires from a cross-cultural context. So they don't have to be in Iranian studies. They can be something else looking at Persia. What I have in mind when I think about all these different empires, but the interaction of, of the Achaemenid Empire with, the, with all these other cultures, I mean, is that we are in a world where cultures are actually <laughs> talking to each other in a sense. I mean, there, is, there are cultural transfer for, I would like to find a better term, but I think it's interesting to think that already back then it's happening. And I would think that there is an acceleration of these converging points in cultures or stories. Also, and we didn't really talk about myth and so on, but there are some stories I know more about Egypt, but that can be that resonate, you know, whether you are, you have Ramses or then Alexander, you know, you have stories that would work for kind of both of them. So I think it's this kind of awareness of all these different cultures of people traveling across Egyptian going to Nineveh very early on. And then stories are not always, I mean, not always peaceful interactions, a lot also of violent or raids happening, but we are in a world where ideas and cultures are moving, passing along across. I think that's something uh, we shouldn't just think it's in our world today that it is happening, even if the scale may be different. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a sentiment that's echoed quite a lot on this show, which is just we need to teach more and do a better job of, of, of showing the interconnectedness of everything and how, you know, they're not little, each field is not its own little silo, right? They all talk to each other. So we should talk to each other across disciplinary boundaries. Yeah, that's certainly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the more people who say it, I hope will make that a reality because we, we do find ourselves too siloed, I think, in academia as it is currently constructed. So I hope that changes in the future. And, you know, the ancient world is so interdisciplinary. So the studies of all these fields should be as well. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I know it's late, but this has been such a fun conversation. And, you know, I, I, I hope that we will see you for something at UCLA again. And, you know, maybe maybe we'll have you on the show in the future as well. Thank you for having me. It was great. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production hosted and edited by Lexi Henning with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Port of Oud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.